0: This morning, my, my message is titled Captive or Victor. No, what? I changed the title. Oh, it was supposed to be Captive or Triumph, but Victor works too. But the whole point of what I was going to say right now doesn't work. It says Triumph on my paper. Just pretend it says Triumph, okay? And I was going to say, okay, this now it doesn't even work at all. I was going to say, you all know what a captive is, And, um, but do you know what a triumph is? But it doesn't seem as cool when it says Victor up on the screen. So I'm sorry for that. Just use your imagination, just work with me, okay? Let's go back in time and just pretend it says triumph. So I can see our our message is titled Captive or Triumph. And uh, you all know what a captive is, I'm sure. You know, you can imagine that. But do you know what a triumph is? Yeah, just keep working with me here, Bob. (laughs) Um, a triumph, actually, so we use that word a lot, but a triumph was, it was a thing. It was a parade that they used to have, and it was for Roman generals. And when Roman generals returned from a campaign where they were successful, they might get a triumph. It was like a really big deal. And so, you know, they would hope for it, and maybe, you know, the Senate would agree, and they would, if it was a really big deal, they would get a triumph. And the triumph, it was, it was this huge Thing. It was basically like a bragging parade or you know a big public spectacle since they didn't have social media. They needed to share their victory. And the way they did it with the people was with this thing called a triumph. You'd march through the streets. And so the way it worked is, is the very first part of the parade was the spoils and the captives. And so the, the very first people in the parade were the captive leaders. And the captive soldiers maybe in chains and anyone who'd fought with those people, their allies, they were all marched out in front. And then behind those people came all the stuff. That we got through this, you know, that the Romans had, had collected through their conquest. And so it was, you know, you'd have the piles of gold and silver. You'd have the armor, or if there's weird different weapons, they would have all those things, you know, paraded out. And then they would have, um, maybe if there was strange or exotic things, like animals from those places. So if they had conquered in Africa, they might bring some African animals. And they would, those animals would be in cages, and they would be marched, and people whoa, oh, look at that, what's that, wow, you know, and it was like this big, you know, and all these people come out and they'd all watch. And the, as the parade goes down and then following the spoils and the captives came the, the Senate, the Romans, who had been magistrates or the government people who had sponsored the campaign. And so they got to march in the parade too. You know, maybe it was their money or whatever who'd sponsored it. So they got to march in the parade. And then following them came the, the high point of the parade. And the high point was the general And the general rode on a four-horse chariot and he got to ride through the street and following the general was his army. And, uh, you know, so this was awesome. And the general, he was, he got to wear, the victorious general got to wear this crown of laurels or it was held above his head and he would wear this purple robe to signify his, you know, honorary status. And sometimes they would paint his face red and that was in honor of the god Jupiter and so his face would be painted red, and he'd wear this robe, and he'd ride in the chariot. And because everyone would acclaim him, and because of the, how incredible his experience was, they would have somebody stand next to him, either a servant or a companion. And that person would whisper in his ear and would say this, Remember, you are mortal. Remember, you're mortal. And that was that one person's job through the whole triumph. Because otherwise, I mean, the, just, it was like as close to being a God as you could be. This experience. And so they said, we need someone there just to remind this person, you know, you're not a God. You're really close right now, but you're not a God. And the procession would end at the temple of Jupiter. And they would end with a sacrifice. This was the triumph. This is what it was like. And Paul challenges the Colossians, remember we're in Colossians, he challenges the Colossians to join the triumph as victors, not as captives. Now remember, our our series is Jesus Plus, and we're working through the letter Paul and Timothy wrote to the Colossian church. The church in Colossae. And remember, too, we've talked about this. Epaphras, who was the church planter, he'd gone and planted this church. It wasn't Paul. And after he planted the church, he kept planting churches. And then he came back later to find out how they were doing. And he was really concerned. He was worried about what he was hearing there. And so he went off and he found Paul and Timothy, Paul, who was probably in Rome in, in prison. And Paul writes the letter. And Timothy, they write this letter back to the church. Now, Remember, the, the problem that we've talked about is they weren't totally sure exactly what the problem was, but they, it was pretty clear that, you know, backwater, small town had given way to major additions to the gospel of Jesus. This was a big problem. The Colossians, they'd done some major renovations. They'd added things like Jewish rules and regulations. They'd added new secret mysteries and revelation. They added new and improved Jesus 2.0 with pagan mysticism and some angel worship, add a little angel worship in there it'll be good. And Paul responds to this by making much of Jesus. That's his answer to this. He spends the whole first section of his letter making much of Jesus, the standalone, supreme and victorious savior, Jesus. And that's where we pick up. We're in the middle of all this making much of Jesus. And so if you'll turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15, that's where we are today. You can look it up on your app if you want or if you have a Bible. Um, I'm reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. Um, And this is what it says. Colossians chapter 2, 8 to 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit according to human tradition he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You can live in religion or you can triumph with Jesus, the victorious God. You can live captive in religion or you can triumph with the with Jesus, the victorious God. We can be captives this is, the, this is the statement. When I was in youth group, but way back in the day, I grew up going to church and I went to youth group. And actually, special note today, my youth pastor is here. He's right over there. His name is Steve Newell. Stand up, Steve. Wave, yeah. He humiliated me all the time, so I'm doing that to him right now. And uh, that's my youth pastor. So it's all his fault. Everything about me. No. I, wanna, I just want to honor him and say thank you. Um, and in youth group, one of the games we played was a game called Prisoner's Base. It was a game we played a lot. It was one of our favorites. And in Prisoner's Base, in this game, you were, we were in a gym, and so we had to start on one wall. Everyone's touching one wall, and the other team's touching the other wall, and there's a chair. And on one of... If I was on this wall, one of our team is sitting on our chairs over there against that wall. And so we would have to try to free that prisoner by leaving the wall, but we could have to do it after they left the wall or they would tag us. And then I would become a prisoner. So it's like a really, it's, it's like a really hard game to actually win. And I, in the end, I, it's kind of a weird g- game. You know, you're just trying to... The, the point is just to free the prisoner and don't get caught being a prisoner. And usually the... As you got taken prisoner, you'd go sit on the chair. And then you'd hold the hand of the person who was on the chair. And so the line suddenly would get longer and longer. And it would get easier and easier to save people. So you hope people would get caught and then you could save them more easily. But this is the game. The game is, you know, save the prisoner, free the prisoner, and don't get caught yourself. That's the game. This sounds a lot like the statement of Jesus when he gets up in front of the synagogue and he says what his purpose is, his mission. He says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor and he's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And our Jesus job with him is jubilee. It's this picture of setting captives free proclaiming freedom for people and not becoming captives, right? This is what Paul says. He says, he issues this warning. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive. So we we could be captives. That's what he says. See to it or make sure. Or he says lots of other places, be alert because you could be taken captive. The word is geo, if you want to learn some Greek. Salago Gale, and it's like, it's a very, not, it's not a very common word used. And it means to take captive, and it's used mostly with, with pirates taking over the ship and stealing cargo. Taking captive, it was like when you'd plunder another ship, that was the word, Salago Gale. You'd be taken captive. So in this picture, we were on our boat and we had our stuff on our boat. We're traveling somewhere and suddenly we wake up a few days later or whenever and we're on a different boat. We're on the pirate boat. We've been taken captive and our stuff is gone or we're dead. That's what pirates do. They kill you or they take you captive. You're their slave. That's the picture. Don't be taken captive. This is what he says. But we were captives. Galatians 3.23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith could be revealed. Or in Romans 6, verse seven or 7, verse six. now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So we could serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Paul says we were captives and then we were set free. So why would we go back to being captives? That doesn't make any sense. No one would want to do that, to go back to captivity. So what takes us captive? How do we end up captive? Paul gives a few, exa- a few things. He says, philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. I agree, I took philosophy in school. It was not a class I did well in. It's all bad, No. <laughs> That's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying all philosophy is bad. Actually, there's an article in the Greek that, so it should say the philosophy. So it's not every philosophy, it's the philosophy. And then actually this word and, and empty deceit, it means more like, for example. So we could read this, the philosophy, which is a hollow deception. So it's not everything, it's this philosophy. It's this thing that they are following. It's empty and hollow. And we say, well, what is that? Well, we don't know. They don't know what it was. They could just piece it it together. And all the scholars will debate, theologians will debate, what what was the Colossians philosophy they were struggling with? And you know what? In the end, it doesn't matter, really. Because we have one that we know really well. It's really familiar to us. It's called religion. Religion. This idea that uh, we're going to be called to just a moral life. Or to an image of holiness, or to a set of regulations, or to a to do list to perform. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I was cleaning up with another youth who he grew up as a Christian, and uh, we were doing something on the stage, and he said to me, I'm never gonna drink. I said, Wow, well, that's good. What made you decide that? And he said, Well, it's a sin. I said, It is? He said, Yeah, it's in the Bible. I said, oh, where? He said, well, I don't know, but it's there. I said, oh, I think Jesus might be in trouble then. Because I think he might have had a drink or two. And uh, this kid was like, what? Jesus, no. No. And then I, I was worried about his parents, what they were going to say. But I got fired shortly after that. i no, is just kidding. The problem is we're captives when an outward image is more important than an inner life. We're captives when we choose moral tradition as our measure of spirituality. Oh, you don't drink, so you're very spiritual. That's like an outward thing. That doesn't tell you how spiritual you are. We're captives when we stop being honest about our struggle. And we start posing and posturing and positioning ourselves so that we can appear to be holy in front of other people. Like, that's so easy to do. You come in and, oh, you know, here's all my stuff. I was struggling and Jesus saved me, transformed me. And, oh, yeah, Jesus transformed me. And now I look really good, don't I? <laughs> Everything's so good Always. And we posture and post so that we now appear to be holy. And we we leave all the stuff down there rotting inside instead of bringing it out and sharing it with someone. Working it out with people. Because we're more interested in the appearance. Where does this come from? Paul says it comes from elemental spirits. Or elemental spiritual forces. This is like scary. It's like what? Elemental. What does that mean? Spiritual forces? Oh. It's not that weird. It's, Paul talks about it a lot. Powers, there's powers, there's forces, there's spiritual beings. All through the Bible, there's these deities that are worshipped as God, even though they're not God. And the word in the, in the Old Testament is actually Elohim. Is used. That's the word used to talk about them with a small e, and it's a word that means gods, like little g-gods. There's these spiritual powers. And the Colossian religion, the thing they're they're in, this philosophy they're following, is energized. It's a false worship that is energized by these spiritual forces who are opposed to God. And they're happy. They are happy. The enemies of God left nothing more than a good show with no heart. A lot of appearance with no inner. They're happy for that. Ephesians 6.11 says this, Put on the whole armor of God, Paul writes, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What if the greatest scheme of the enemy is not overt evil, although that's definitely a work of the enemy? But what if the greatest scheme isn't that? What if it's just a church that won't preach Christ? What if it's a people with the appearance of godliness and no power in their lives? What if it's a good church? That's a good church. That's a nice church. Really like that church. But there's no love or compassion or grace. And that is a scheme to hold us captive. But there's an offer. Barry Schwartz, in his TED Talk, The Paradox of Choices, talks about how, the paradox of choice. He talks about uh, that the, we want more and more choices in life, but more and more choices aren't better always. Actually, sometimes we just get paralyzed with all the choices that we have to make. And an example would be if you went down in the toothpaste aisle, if I'm trying to replace my toothpaste, you know, I throw the old toothpaste away and then I go into the toothpaste aisle and I'm overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed because I can't remember what kind of toothpaste I had. Don't remember the name of it. And now I have a thousand choices. I probably would pick kids bubblegum because it has door on it or something. You know, it's, it looks appealing. Look, th- there's so many choices. Tartar control, whitening, natural, organic, natural and organic. With fluoride, without fluoride, bubblegum flavor, beer flavor. They should make that. <laughs> Paul, Paul makes it really simple for us. So we're not overwhelmed with the choices. He makes it really simple. The choices he offers are this. You could be a captive or you could be a victor. You could be empty or you could live in fullness. You could be dead or you could be alive. You could live in shame or you could be forgiven. Well, when you say it like that, I don't think there's much choice to make, really. Who wouldn't pick everything on the right side? We would all pick those things, wouldn't we? Isn't that what we all want? How do we get all this? Paul says, in him. In Christ. That's where you get it. You want to know where you get all that? You get it in Jesus. In Jesus, Paul returns to that hymn language. We talked about the hymn, the early church hymn. In him and for him, different hymn. In him and for him and through him. Seven times in our passage, Paul refers to the source. In him, in him, in him, with him, with him, with him. Do you get it? In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. For you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. We aren't captives because this God-man Jesus is filled with all the fullness of deity. He is God. Filled with all of God. And then Paul says, and you have been filled in him. You've been filled in him. Or the NIV says, you've been brought to fullness. Or the New American Standard says, you've been made complete. It's more literal. You've been made complete. Like, what are we going to add to Jesus? Well, you've been made complete. Well, I think I need a little more. You're full. I'm still hungry. It's Like, no, you're not. You're full. Like, so that's what full means. You're full. Well, I'll just throw a little dessert on top. It's like, there's nothing you can add to this. What do we add? We, we add all sorts of things, though. We make gods. The Isaiah, in the message, explains it well. It says it like this. God, you've walked out on your family, Jacob, because their world is full of hokey religion, Philistine witchcraft, and pagan hocus-pocus, a world rolling in wealth, stuffed with things, no end to its machines and gadgets and gods. Gods of all sorts and sizes. These people make their own gods and worship what they make. Oh, I I don't worship idols. I don't do that. That's weird. Do you worship what we make? Do you give all your time and attention and energy and focus toward it? This is our choice. A life stuffed with demanding schedules and pressures and gadgets and machines and wealth and things. No gods of our own making. Or on the other side, Jesus. The fullness of God. Supreme over all things. Making us complete. Again, I'd say the choice is obvious. Now someone's saying like, what's all that about circumcision? I heard someone say circumcision in this passage. And if you just showed up, circumcision is—it uh, was the Jewish practice of cutting off the foreskin of the penis. And there, we can check that off, I said another <laughs> word you shouldn't say in a sermon. And a few times this was done to adult men, and so we won't talk about it anymore. We'll just say you could read the stories in the Old Testament. <laughs> but we should say that, that it was a God-ordained act. It was a a physical mark to represent the inward heart. That's what it was meant to be. And these people who were marked belonged to God. They were marked by God. Their hearts were marked by God. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 when it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And then Paul writes, in him, also you were circumcised by the circumcision of Christ. This is a a good one. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. This beautiful picture. The picture of baptism is a picture of being marked by Jesus. Jesus. Your heart marked with Jesus, you go down into the waters in death, in the grave, and you come out of the waters in resurrection, in life with him. It's this beautiful picture. Colossians 2.20, Paul writes, so just a little bit after our passage, Paul says this, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to the regulations? If you died with Christ, why are you still acting like you're alive to that? You died to it with Christ. And the image of circumcision might seem weirdly out of place for you and me. You know, maybe it does. I don't know. Unless you understand that the mark of circumcision was the invitation into the family of God, into the Jewish family. If, if you wanted to be part of the Jewish family, they'd say, well, you need to be circumcised. Okay, wow, this is a big commitment. Yeah. Yeah. And you're marked and invited into this family. Jesus marks us as a part of his family. We're no longer a part of the world. We died to that. And we're alive in him. And the offer is to move from death to life. That's the offer. Jesus tells this story of uh, a son. Famous story. Luke chapter 15. Of a son who goes to his father and he wants the inheritance early. And the father says, You know, you're the younger son, but I, there is inheritance for you. If you want, I don't have to be dead. I'll let, divide up my inheritance and I'll give you your share. And so the son says, Yes. And he takes all this money, unlimited wealth, it feels like, and he goes off to the big city and he spends it on whatever he wants because he just does whatever he thinks is going to make him happy. And he has unlimited money to do it with. Isn't that kind of our dream? Just be honest. Isn't that kind of our dream? To have unlimited money to do whatever you want? That's my dream. I shouldn't say that out loud. <laughs> unlimited money to do whatever I want. That's what he had. Actually, Solomon describes it as this. He is never saying no to a single impulse of pleasure. That's how Solomon would describe what this son did. And he takes the money and he goes and just lives. He never says no to anything. I want to do that, I'm going to do it. I want to do that, I'm going to do it. I'm going to have this party. I want to have that thing. I want to have that thing. I want to have that person. I'm going to do it. I'm just going to buy it all. And at a certain point, the money did run out because money is not unlimited. And it did run out. And then he didn't have anything. All of his friends disappeared. The creditors took all the stuff. And all the things he thought were going to make him happy, gone. And then he's looking for a job. And in that day, he went to the the pig farmer because that was the only person who would hire him. And maybe in our day it would be like, I don't want to say this because it sounds mean, but McDonald's, he went to McDonald's and he tried to get a job and they said, no, we take anyone but we won't take you. And he said, please, please, I need a job. They said, you have no experience. Finally, he got the, he was allowed to sweep the floor and wipe the tables. And then, because he was so hungry and didn't have a paycheck, he's like clearing the table and there's some cold French fries and a little bit of leftover Big Mac and he's about to pour it out and then he takes it and he starts eating it. Someone's leftover Big Mac and cold fries. Cold McDonald's fries are not good. And then he says, I'm at the lowest of the low. You know what? At least the custodians in my father's buildings, they had better jobs than they had jobs. They had money. They didn't eat like this. I could go home. Maybe I could be not a son, but a servant. And so he, he decides this is what he's going to do. And so he takes his way home. And as he gets home, he's planning what he's going to say. And he gets up to the, their estate, the long driveway up to the house. And then as he's walking up the driveway, he's thinking about, no, I, I, I shouldn't be called your son. No, that doesn't sound right. I'm, I'm ashamed to be called. No, I, I could be a sir. I don't know. And he's working out what he's going to say. And he doesn't know that his father is looking out the window and sees him walking up the road. And this father middle eastern father in his robe hitches up the robe and starts running down the driveway like no no for dignified dad in middle east right don't they don't run people run to them they are elderly. you know you don't this this father hitches up his robe and he starts running and he runs down that driveway until he gets to his son and he grabs him up in his arms and starts kissing his face and the son says, No, dad, no, no, no. I, I, I don't deserve to be called. And the dad picks him up again and says, Shh, No, stop it. And he's kissing him. And the son says, stop. Dad, I'm trying to say something. No, no, you're not. I love you. I'm so glad you're home. And he says, call, call the servants. We're having a party. Bring the robe. Bring the stuff. We're having a party. Call everyone we know. And he says this Because my son was dead and now he's alive. And then the son said, Dad, Dad, actually. I wasn't dead. I, I'm still, I'm I was fine. I was not, it wasn't a good place, but I was oh, okay. Dad says, No, you were dead. No, no, I wasn't dead, Dad. This isn't in the Bible. <laughs> Son says, No, I wasn't dead. I, I was fine. I was okay. No, you were dead. No, I wasn't dead. You were lost. No, Dad, I was in New York. I wasn't lost. I knew exactly where I was the whole time. You were dead. And you were lost. You and I, we were lost. And we were dead. This is the picture. In our failure and in our shame and in our brokenness. In our lostness. But God, who is a running father, ran to get us. And kiss us till so we couldn't talk. And carried us in. And there's this cross that Paul keeps talking about. That somehow as Jesus dies and he breathes again, we are made alive with Jesus in this beautiful miracle. Charles Wesley in his hymn writes, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head. And clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown. Through Christ my own. I claim the crown. Through Christ my own. And there's a triumph. There is a triumph. You know Julius Caesar. He's one of the Roman generals. Who got more than one triumph. He got a whole bunch of them. And one of the incredible things about Julius Caesar was as, a, as a, he was a military leader, he was like a military genius, he won all these battles, and always, uh, you know, at odds, they were the little army, and they were up against big armies, and he somehow won. And he had this incredible charisma about him. He drew people to himself, drew people to his vision. And one of the amazing things was he would go onto a battlefield, and he would beat the larger army. And more than once he did this, where he'd go out and he would face their captives, the, the army they had defeated. And then he would invite them to come and to join his army. What? Are you kidding? Come and be my legionnaires. Come and join the army of Rome. And they would. The best of them came and they, he made them into more legions. His army grew as he went and conquered And then he would tell them this army of all sorts of people uh, of the Gauls and the Bretons and the Germanic tribesmen and the Greeks and the Egyptians. He would say, "You are Rome. You are Rome. Rome is not just a place. You are Rome. I've made you into Rome." And he would lead them, and they would fight for him, like stand again. It was it's crazy. They came to believe in Rome, and you know what? They marched in the triumph. When they got there to Rome, not as slaves, but as victors. And they came to believe in Rome, not as captives, but as Romans. He made them into Romans. It's crazy. And this same picture is true for us. As former enemies of God, we've been invited into the victory of Jesus, we've been invited into his victory. What's the victory? Well, there's two obstacles described in our passage. Two things. One of them is the law, and the other one is the powers and authorities. They were both, one is canceled and one is disarmed. That's what he says. He nails it to the cross. He disarms. He divests himself. He makes a public spectacle, and he puts them to open shame. He makes a public display. That's what Jesus does the first thing is that my debt has been canceled. Now I'll be honest, a while back I had a large debt, a personal debt, and I'd racked it up through my sloth and laziness. I had warning emails that they sent and said, you're overdue, you're, you're, you've gone over, and um, I was banned actually from borrowing. It's really embarrassing. And so finally, to confront this massive debt, I got the courage and I went to the librarian. And I said, I'm overdue. And she said, was I freaking you out? You guys, you fell for it. You thought it was a powerful moment, it was just the library. And, and so I went to the librarian and she said, give me your card and I gave her the card and I said, I'll be honest, I'm, I have big fines." And she looked, and she was like, these are all children's picture books. And I said, yeah, I like picture books. That's all I read. She was like, do you have kids? I said, yes, no, I have kids. I have five kids. They like picture books. She said, "Wow, well, there's a lot of picture book finds on your account. I said, I know. We took out like 50 at once, and then we never returned them forever. And 50 kids books. It that's up really fast. And she was like, oh, my goodness. OK, wow, dedicated father. Good job. Come to the library, teach your kids to read. It's like, well, I'm teaching them to look at pictures. <laughs> she does this thing, and then she says, don't worry about it. She gives me back my card, and she says, it's, it's done. It's finished. Paid in full. It's the same expression Jesus uses on the cross when he died under the weight of all of our sin. It's a business term. It's a term you would use in the library when your fine was paid. It's done. It's finished. Your debt's erased. Or you'd use it when your line of credit gets paid down. Whoo! Yes, it's finished. Oh, I'm free. Your house gets paid off. Finished. Done. Paul writes, and you God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross (laughs) as if it was never there. This is what the expression means. It means to cause something to cease by obliterating any evidence. What, some of you need to write that down. And put it somewhere where you can see it when you feel shame all over you. You can write that down. You can say, to cause something to cease by obliterating any evidence. That's what Jesus did. And for Paul, the law is the tally of our sin. It's like a giant IOU. It's a record of the debt that stands against us. Every time I failed to be like God... Every time I I failed in my words or my thoughts or my actions. Every time I failed to love, which is a lot. Or to trust, which is a lot. Or to believe, which is a lot too. Each one of these things is like an entry in my book. In my ledger. This word, Greek word, means... It's translated, stood against us. It literally means opposed to us, is hostile, condemns us. That's what this did. The law shuts up the Jews and it, it shuts out the Gentiles. It, it means we all owe, we're all in trouble. In Ephesians 2, 14 to 16, this is what it says. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances and might reconcile us both. That is both, meaning Jews and Gentiles, everyone. To God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility who died in this war? Who's the enemy? Well hostility. Killed, dead. Not just canceled, but taken away, obliterated. Poof. And this is the triumph of the cross that the enemies the enemy conspired to put Jesus there on the cross, to parade him, to make a public spectacle of him, to disarm him meaning to strip him and to triumph. Jesus wore a crown, not of laurels, but of thorns. He wore a purple robe, not in honor, but in mockery. And he was made to be publicly paraded through the streets. And instead of someone whispering to him, you are mortal, they shouted at him, if you're God, save yourself. You're a human. You're just a man. That's what they shout. And of course, we know that this triumph ends with a sacrifice. Jesus willingly lays down his life. And then Jesus turns everything on its head. It really was his triumph. It really was. He disarmed the rulers and the powers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame, and he rose from death. So why would we surrender to powers that have no power anymore? They, they've been defeated. Paul says, why would you go back into something that you've been set free out of? Something that there's already the victories won. Ephesians 1, 19 to 23, Paul writes this. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one also to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And this is the beautiful picture that you and I stood across the battlefield from God, defeated in our sin, in shame. And Jesus calls us, he invites us into his victory. He says, come, I will make you citizens and heirs, not of Rome, but of the promise. Children of God, walk my triumph. That's the invitation. You can live in religion or you could triumph with Jesus, the victorious God. You could be captive, you were, and Jesus set you free. And you can go back to living in religion instead of in freedom, but you have options. You could be a captive or you could be a victor. You could be empty or you could be filled, you could be dead or you could be alive. You could live in shame or you could live in forgiveness and experience it. Because Jesus wants to complete you, to fill you. And he triumphed. What more could we add to Jesus? He's the name above every name. What are you going to add to that? He erased the record that was hostile to us. He obliterated it. And he marched in this gruesome triumph all the way to victory. The cross to the resurrection. And Jesus offers us a place in his victory procession. Much more beautiful one to claim his victory as our own. Let's pray.